Well, it's time for us. It's Good morning. Time for- Once again. <laughs> Here we are. Good morning, everyone. Wednesday, November 30th. And we have a lot happening. As a matter of fact, happening right now, at least 20 tornadoes have been reported in the South. Alabama facing strong winds and hail. In Mississippi, a community there grappling with major destruction. This is a moment. Look at this. The storm blew a steeple off of the church, the top of a church. We're live on the ground. You're going to see it. Also this morning, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and one of his subordinates has been found guilty of seditious conspiracy over that extensive plot that culminated with the January 6th attack. Their conviction, a landmark victory for the White House, or for the Justice Department. Adams. Austin McKay, Des making a big run. It's meant for him. Des is snuck in behind. Des in the middle. Pulisic! Scores! Oh! Everyone was in it, Don. Oh, the same, that game-winning goal, I should say, sending the U.S. to the knockout rounds against the Netherlands this weekend. But as the World Cup continues on for the United States, will the star player, Christian Pulisic, who sacrificed his body, be a part of it? He says yes. That game was awesome. It was awesome. Did I do it right? Goal! Yesterday. I like how they do it. They like run out of air. Someone's going to pass out. Uh, but we have to, we're going to have all of that, but we have to begin with this. Uh, the South is on high alert right now after a massive storm system spawned at least 20 tornadoes in several states. I mean, look at that. Gusty winds swept debris into the air in Alabama, just west of Huntsville, while four people were injured and multiple animals found dead in Louisiana's Caldwell Parish. That storm washed out this bridge in Mississippi's Monroe County, leaving a truck stranded. We're going to get straight now to Ryan Young, who is now in Mississippi, standing in front of a church where the steeple was blown off. Exactly where are you and what happened? How bad is the damage? Yeah, Don, first of all, we've been driving throughout the night and the winds have been pretty strong. The rain has been consistent throughout the night. Now the temperature has dropped, but you said you wanted to see the steeple about 30 minutes away from Columbus, Mississippi. You can see this came off this church. Of course, it's still dark here. We're an hour behind you. So as you can imagine, we haven't been able to assess all the damage right now. But this right here showed you how strong some of those winds were knocking this off the top of the church. If you look up there, though, we don't see any major roof damage, but this is what people were concerned about that these storms were going to be hitting later on in the night and that people would not have the chance after hearing the tornado sirens to get out of the way luckily so far we haven't heard anything about any injuries in this general area but as you can see the damage here um, this steeple is pretty massive i mean when you walk over to it you can see how solid it is this thing was just blown right off emergency crews have cleared this area we're actually told the firehouse nearby that was slightly damaged as well and there may be a house within a mile away from here that suffered some damage as well. So when you think about all this compounding wind late in the season when it comes to tornado season, you can understand why so many people were worried about the damaging effects this could have in this area. Yeah, major yeah. storm system rolling through the south. We're going to thank you, Ryan. We'll check back in with you in just a bit. All right, it was a landmark verdict for the Justice Department in a Washington, D.C. courtroom. The founder and leader of the Oath Keepers and one of his top deputies were both found guilty of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep former President Trump in office. The jury found three other defendants in the case not guilty of sedition. They also acquitted Rhodes of two separate conspiracy charges. All five defendants were found guilty of obstructing an official proceeding. 
This matters because this was the first of three seditious conspiracy cases to be heard. It was also seen as a major test of the Justice Department's ability to hold those Capitol rioters accountable. CNN's Paula Reed is live in Washington this morning. Paula, the outcome of this verdict is huge for the Justice Department. Where do we go from here? You're right, Caitlin. This was a big test for the Justice Department. And after three days of deliberations, the jury returned a split verdict, but it was still a victory for prosecutors because it was the first time in a trial related to the Capitol attack where a jury found that the violence on January 6th was not a spontaneous disruption, but the product of an organized conspiracy. Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the far-right Oath Keepers militia, and one of his subordinates, Kelly Meggs, were convicted of seditious conspiracy Tuesday, the most serious charge brought so far in any of the more than 900 criminal cases stemming from the Capitol attack. Rhodes, Meggs, and three other defendants, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson, and Thomas Caldwell, were all convicted of obstructing an official proceeding and several other charges. I think that the character of January 6th is now finally sinking into the whole country. The Justice Department alleged that the Oath Keepers conspired to forcibly stop the peaceful transfer of power and plotted to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The trial, the first of three seditious conspiracy cases, was a major test of the Justice Department's ability to hold January 6th rioters accountable. The lead prosecutor told the jury in his closing statement that Rhodes and his subordinates claimed to be saving the republic, but they fractured it instead. The evidence presented at trial revealed how Rhodes, a former Army paratrooper with a law degree from Yale, wrote two public letters urging then-President Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, which would give the president the power to call up militants to help him remain in power. If the fight comes, let the fight come. Let Antifa go. If they go kinetic on us, then we'll, then we'll go kinetic back on them. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for that. But the fight starts there, okay? Now, give President Trump what he needs, frankly. If, if things go kinetic, good. If they blow bombs up and, and shoot us, great. Because that brings the president his, his reason and rationale for dropping the insurrection act. Prosecutors said Rhodes placed a quick reaction force of heavily armed Oath Keepers at a Comfort Inn in Arlington County, Virginia, ready to rush their weapons to Washington if needed. On the day of the insurrection, Rhodes remained outside the Capitol. We presented a case which uh, showed through evidence and testimony that uh, Mr. Rhodes did not commit the crime of seditious conspiracy. Uh, there was no evidence introduced to indicate that there was a plan. They've also signaled that they intend to file some appeals. Now, Rhodes and Megs are the first people in nearly 30 years to be found guilty at trial of seditious conspiracy. It's a rarely used civil war charge that could be pretty difficult to prove. Now, all of these defendants face up to decades in prison. A sentencing date has not been set. But, Caitlin, that usually happens a few months after the verdict. Yeah, we'll be watching to see what that looks like. Paula Reed, thank you for that update. All right, now to the latest on the January 6th investigation. Former uh, Trump advisor and speechwriter, you'll remember him, Stephen Miller, testifying before a federal grand jury in Washington. This makes him the first known witness to appear since the Justice Department appointed that special counsel to oversee the criminal investigations involving the former president since he announced another run for the White House. Caitlin Polanth joins us from Washington. So, as I said, first time that there is testimony before this 
uh, grand jury in D.C. since the special counsel was appointed. There was concern. Would the special counsel slow things down, et cetera? Would this indicate no? Uh, that that's exactly right, Poppy. This is moving along at a pretty steady clip. We don't know that many names of people who've gone before this grand jury, but this particular grand jury has been hearing lots of things from some really top people around Donald Trump um, after the election and even on January 6th. So Miller is one of those people who was inside the White House talking to the president, including on January 6th, as the speechwriter preparing that speech that he gave on the ellipse to his supporters before they went to the Capitol and rioted. And the thing that we know Miller has talked about before, uh, because he spoke to the House Select Committee about it, was what Trump wanted to put in the speech and this question of whether Trump was going to mention Mike Pence. Uh, It was one of those things that was in the speech and then it was out of the speech. Miller was involved in those discussions. And so that's one of the things that this grand jury likely would want to know from him. And what this represents with all of these other people that are going into the grand jury as well, top Pence advisors, top Trump advisors, Miller now, those people are all the firewall around Donald Trump's presidency. And clearly the Justice Department now with this special counsel, they're chipping away at that. They're trying to get more and more questions very close to Donald Trump. For sure. And Caitlin, while we have you, uh, what about this? The fact that the South Carolina Supreme Court has ordered uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, to testify. This is in a separate investigation, right, into Georgia's election meddling, Georgia doing the election meddling investigation. Do you expect that Meadows will still fight this? Well, we don't know exactly what's going to play out with Meadows one-on-one when he peers for the grand jury, but there is the Supreme Court in South Carolina saying he has to show up, that his arguments just are manifestly not with merit. That's what the court said. Um, And so he will now likely show up for that testimony. He could try and decline to answer some questions, but we would just have to see how that goes. Again, chipping away around Donald Trump, another top advisor in a criminal investigation being ordered to show up. Absolutely. Caitlin, thanks very much for the reporting. So it is a landmark bipartisan vote. The Senate has passed a bill to protect same-sex and interracial marriages. 61, the nays are 36. Uh, The bill, as amended, has passed. Mr. President, what a great day. What a great day. The Respect for Marriage Act is also expected to be passed. It passed, I should say, by a vote of 61 to 36, with 12 Republicans joining Democrats in support of the legislation, including some very conservative members. For the sake of our nation today and its survival, we do well by taking this step, not embracing or validating each other's devoutly held views, but by the simple act of tolerating them. And that, Madam President, explains my vote. Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema reacted to the vote by saying these families are normal, these marriages are normal, and I can't wait for people all across the country to be able to talk to their children and their children's children about the time in America when we made it completely normal for families to be together. The bill heads next to the House, where it is expected to pass by the end of the year before heading to President Joe Biden's desk. 
Also, other action on Capitol Hill this morning as Democratic and Republican leaders in Congress are preparing to act to pass legislation that would avert a nationwide rail strike. That coming after President Biden called on them to do so after he warned that a strike could deal a devastating blow to the nation's economy. This is overriding what union workers had wanted to see happen here. It's also frustrated some progressives on Capitol Hill who say the offer should include paid leave for those rail workers. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House. MJ, you know, Biden came into office promising to be the most pro-union president in the country's history. I know that's something that is very close to his heart. So I imagine this was not necessarily the decision he wanted to make here. But what led him to this? Yeah, you know how often the president will describe himself as pro-union. It is a label, as you said, he wears very proudly. So this decision to publicly call on Congress to take action to avert this strike and essentially force some of his allies uh, in the union uh, to sort of be uh, accepting of something that they're not entirely happy with, that obviously came with some political risk. And ultimately, it wasn't something that the president uh, wanted to do at the end. He knew that there would be uh, some backlash. Uh, you know, you look at some of his public statements, and they've all almost been these sort of uh, pain statements explaining why he had to do what he had to do. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the White House did see this coming a mile away. Our reporting is that by mid-November, the White House was making contingency plans for precisely this scenario, uh, the scenario where talks would ultimately fall apart. And that's when uh, we are told the president picked up the phone and called congressional leaders, called some of his top cabinet officials and told them, yeah, my public statement is coming. I'm I'm going to call on Congress to act. It's remarkable, but, you know, he's been getting criticism from the rail workers who did not want to see this. We talked to one of them, one of them here the other day who said they believed that this was the wrong decision to actually see Congress pass this legislation. What else has the White House been hearing from organized labor on this move? Yeah, there's no question that the president and the White House, they have been getting plenty of criticism. You know, some saying that he had blown it. Uh, you know that the paid leave uh, sick policy, that has been uh, a real sticking point in all of this. But I do want to offer just a little bit of nuance and context that I think is important, too. Uh, you know, dozens of unions were involved in these negotiations, and ultimately four of them ended up rejecting this agreement that was agreed to uh, earlier this year. So there were plenty of rank-and-file members that were happy with it. You know, one labor strategy. I talked to. They said this is hardly Biden sticking it to the unions. They said this is not President Reagan and Paco. This is obviously uh, the 1980 situation where he ended up firing thousands of air traffic controllers that were on strike. So, yeah, there is some nuance and context here and certainly some political risk, too. Yeah. And also just looking at the economic consequences that could happen with this strike. MJ Lee, thank you. All right. Did you see it yesterday? It was the moment American soccer fans have been waiting for since 2014. Watch. Or Adams. Austin McKinney. Des making a big run. It's meant for him. Des is snuck in behind. Des in the middle. Pulisic scores. There's the moment when the U.S. beat Iran in the World Cup yesterday to advance to the knockout round thanks to that goal by Christian Pulisic. But as a result of the game-winning goal, he suffered a pelvic contusion. He had to go to the hospital. He said he'll be fine, that he'll play in the next U.S. match on Saturday against the Netherlands. Fans across not only the United States celebrated the goal and the win. It got the president excited. Look at this. United States For the team, they had an impromptu celebration of their own back at the hotel. You can see Polisic embracing some of his teammates, perhaps a good sign 
of his chances for playing on Saturday. There were even, I should note, celebrations in Iran after the U.S. win, where many came to see their own national team as a symbol of the regime, who have faced protests over human rights abuses and the treatment of women for months. So joining us now, former U.S. men's national team player and Fox Sports match analyst for the World Cup, Kobe Jones. Kobe, great to have you. What did you make of the moment? What does this mean for the team? Well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, I, I think this is an extremely important moment for U.S. soccer, for this team. You know, getting through the group stage is uh, probably the base of what you expect from the United States, but they've done that and they get to move forward. And, and now it's almost, I, I can tell you from personal experience, it's a sense of relief for the players. So this is the time where they can go into that, almost that second tournament vibe and then try to push forward and have even more success. Can you just talk, though, about Christian's role here in this? Because he attacked this game head-on. He has been responsible for two of the goals that they've scored here. He was an assist on one. Obviously, he scored in this game yesterday. It was it was just amazing to watch, and it came at a price to him, obviously, because he's been injured. Talk about his role, though, and what that meant to, to securing this victory. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can um, overstate the role that Christian Pulisic plays within the U.S. national team. Um, he's a leader. You know, he's the one that sets the example for everybody else on that team. And he's the player that was, you know, in the last qualifying cycle, he was on the field when the U.S. did not qualify and go to the World Cup. So you can, he has it in his heart, that pain from before. So he's, he's uh, set himself as the role model, as the hard worker for this team. And, and he's the one that has stepped up, as you said. He's, he's pushed it, you know, beyond anything else. He's willing to sacrifice himself. And that sends a message to all the other players. If your if your leader is willing to do that, you know what are you going to do? You know, so he's he's the one that's really um, setting the tone for the United States going forward and getting ready for this next game against the the Netherlands. If you're following this online, especially on social media, it's blowing up when you watch it. When you watch the players consoling each other, oh, yeah. you see the American players and the Iranian players and, and what have you. It, it's it's amazing to these these guys put so much into this, and you have on top of that not just wanting to win, but the geopolitical part of it as well. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, there is a geopolitical aspect of this. We all know about, uh, know everything that's going on between the U.S., Iran, within Iran, within the U.S., and the various issues. But when it, when it comes down to it, we're talking about young men on the field competing for their countries. And I think we saw it um, with the I, I, Iranian player, Saeed Azatollahi, when after the game, how he was devastated on the field. And the U.S. players, you know, Sargent and various others came up and actually consoled them because there's an understanding yeah, that, yes, on the outside, there's so many things going on. But it, it is um, a, a dedication to the game. It's a spirit of, of sportsmanship that happens on the field between all the players and they, they leave everything else behind. And it's all about that game and a feeling for the opponent who isn't going on. Hmm. Kobe Jones, are, can, are you out there also screaming, go, as well? <laughs> yes, I think I'm doing a little bit better than that, though. We won't, we won't you know, give people your rendition of Wake Him Up this morning, not unless you want to. Thank you, Kobe. Thanks, Thanks so thank much. Thank you, I appreciate it. 
So authorities in China are cracking down on protesters, but that's not stopping people from taking to the streets. Plus this. All right, well, you can hear the incoming rounds. The incoming rounds from Russian artillery fire are really intensive here. We've got a CNN exclusive for you this morning. That's our Matthew Chance. He is on the ground in Ukraine as the missile hit a building nearby. We'll go live there ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. All right, well, you can hear the incoming rounds. The incoming rounds from Russian artillery fire are really intensive here. That was seen as Matthew Chance on the front lines of Ukraine's battle for Bakhmut. After months of relentless missile attacks, Ukrainian troops continue to hold on as both sides have had minimal, made minimal gains here. Let's go straight to CNN's Matthew Chance. Now he's live in the Dnipro, Ukraine, a CNN exclusive look. Matthew, I mean, this is still going on after months and months and months, and it doesn't seem to be relenting. Yeah, it is still going on, the whole conflict. And of course, in that area of Bakhmut, the Russians are trying to surround the town. Um, It's being described by the Ukrainian soldiers that we spoke to as the hardest part of the front line with constant artillery shelling and close quarter fighting taking a terrible toll. The brutal fight for Bakhmut. Where Ukrainian troops are battling Russia's onslaught. These exclusive images are from the soldiers themselves. Their commanders tell us dozens of lives are now being sacrificed here every day. The road into town is heavy with thick smoke and danger. Explosions ahead force us to pull over before another slams into a building close by. All right, well, you can hear the incoming rounds. The incoming rounds from Russian artillery fire are really intensive here as we have entered the outskirts of Bakhmut, which is, you know, certainly from everything we're seeing, everything we've been told is now the most fiercely contested patch of ground in the entire Russia-Ukrainian conflict. So fierce, we made a rapid exit, leaving the relentless barrage behind. Much of this battle is fought avoiding the artillery threat. In underground bunkers like these, where local Ukrainian commanders like Pavlo can respond to Russian attacks. They're assaulting our positions from early morning till night, he tells me. But the real problem is we are heavily outnumbered, he says. But the innovative use of low-cost tech is helping to bridge that gap. In another frontline bunker, we saw how commercially available drones are giving Ukraine an edge. Wow, that's incredible because we've just seen an artillery uh, strike in this position that the Ukrainian drone operators have identified as being full of Russians. Like you can see Russian soldiers as we look at them live now, 
running for cover as Ukrainian artillery pounds their positions. But battery commanders at the front line, like two men, tell me they're now running low on ammunition rounds. And that even guns sent from the United States are breaking under such constant strain. They need more of both, they say, if this battle for Bakhmut is ever to be won. Of course, the uh, high casualties that they're being suffering on the Ukrainian side, it's reflected on the other side as well. Remember, the Russians are ploughing resources and manpower into the battle for Bakhmut. They're making some territorial gains, but at a very high cost. Don. Matthew Chance from Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, next, a clash of wills. China using force to crush protests, but demonstrators keep breaking, demonstrations keep breaking out across the country. Also, an urgent warning this morning from authorities as lava is pouring out of this volcano in Hawaii. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Here's what's coming up on the program this hour. Chinese authorities are warning of a sweeping crackdown on those rare national demonstrations that we've seen on those harsh coronavirus restrictions. Also, lava flowing from Mauna Loa Volcano is coming within four miles of the main highway on Hawaii's Big Island. And now authorities are raising health concerns about that. And what if you could predict the risk of a heart, heart attack or a stroke with a single chest X-ray? There is an artificial intelligence program that may soon be able to do just that. We'll tell you more. So new this morning, China cracking down on rare protests across the nation over the regime's strict COVID policies as new video emerges of protesters and police clashing in the streets. Police in China increasing censorship and intimidation tactics by taking people's phones in broad daylight in major cities like Shanghai and ordering people to delete content. China's zero COVID policy includes mandatory quarantining of closed contacts of COVID patients, mass testing and lockdowns requiring citizens to be confined to their neighborhoods or apartments in some cities for months on end. CNN's own Selena Wang, you've seen her nearly every morning recently on this program. Well, she's detailed her own experience under quarantine in China, sharing just how invasive these protocols are. Here's part of what she writes, quote, COVID workers came into my quarantine room today with a bunch of swabs. They tested the sink, the bathroom surfaces, a clothing hanger and countertop for COVID. This is quarantine in China. So joining us now is renowned international journalist who was uh, who has worked in Asia for more than 35 years, including here at CNN, Maria Reza Ressa. And we're so happy that she's here. She has spent her career challenging corruption, including creating a website scrutinizing Philippines um, President Duterte. And, and she is just amazing. She has endured multiple arrests by his government and faced years in prison. But yet she is still here. She's even writing. She has a new book. And it's called How to Stand Up to a Dictator, The Fight for Our Future. Good morning to you. It is so good to be here. It is so good to have you. We admire you so much. We really appreciate you being here. Can we talk about, we have lots to talk about, but let's talk about this 
these protests in China and the crackdowns on what's going on there, people, Chinese people are showing up in the streets. Yeah. Can you put this into context for us? Well, I mean, what's interesting watching both Ukraine and China, both of these governments, uh, Russia, uh, use information warfare first, right, before conventional warfare. And in, in many ways, China is at the forefront of control through data, which is creeping through the world. China has consolidated control. Um, a friend of mine, Jimmy Lai, who ran Apple TV in yeah. Hong Kong, he is in prison, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't expect that this would happen, but the world has fallen off the cliff. One of the things that you say so brilliantly, and we should remind people, you're, you've been a journalist for so many years. You, you, 36. you know, ran the Jakarta Started Bureau. Started here. I right opened here. the Jakarta Bureau. I opened the Manila Bureau. It is so good to be here with you guys. And so, so great to have you as part of what built this company. Um, you talk about freedom, and the way you put it is you really don't know what freedom is until you're about to lose it. And look at China. And look at standing up. You, your book is how to stand up to a dictator. Look at what some very brave Chinese people are standing up to now. Yeah, but, you know, be careful not to throw it out there because it is here. It is person to person yeah. in America, yes. anywhere it is. But let, let me, let's talk China and let's talk control, right? TikTok, which has taken over, right? Uh, direct line. There's actually two different versions of the code of TikTok. One for China and one for the rest of the world, right? Don, you you know this. And the fact that the one for China, they know the dangers of control, of behavior manipulation, which is what you see at the extreme here. Uh, And they make it so that kids 14 and below are kicked out at a certain time. They have educational videos for them. Uh, Kristen Harris, a friend of mine, calls it the spinach version. Mm -hmm. And then they exported the opioid version for the rest of the world. To us. Mm-hmm. To you. Yeah, to us. And, and this is part of, I think, you know, the control that we're living through. The novels, the science fiction, we're here. And it starts with data. The fact that social media platforms have essentially cloned each of us. They take machine learning, they take atomized posts, they clone us, and then they pull AI to actually micro-target your weakest moment a message. So what you see on the video... That is the physical version, but it starts online because online impunity is impunity off. What you said in your Nobel speech. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm repeating. I oh. feel like Cassandra and Sisyphus combined. No, I think people need you to repeat because what you're saying is really important. The TikTok thing is also critical. We'll be talking later on about how the governor of South Dakota has banned it from government employees from it's having interesting. it. When you see what's happening in China and something I've been talking to people who work in the national security realm in the administration about is, is, is this going to result in meaningful change? Because the White House is focused only on the fact that they're protesting against the draconian COVID measure, measures. Yeah. Yeah. But also you've seen the protesters holding up the white sheets of paper, yes. a, a sign of protesting yes. about democracy. Yes. And there are costs to them, right? This as we saw the umbrella revolution 2014 moving into here. Um, and I was, I was at Tiananmen Square. You know, when it comes down, you'll see it. We should watch it as you're watching. But we just, you know, there are draconian responses to this. And that's what the world must stop. But look at what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, but listen, I think there's a, you said there's a lesson in it for all of us. It's yes. not just in China. It's a, there's an, this is all about, as you say, information warfare. warfare. And, but... America is not immune to it. And you've already been targeted, right? I mean, the 1,000-page Mueller report with all the data that's been pushed out, uh, this social media, the tools of 
of gathering data on each of us now has insidiously manipulated us. Uh, it is at a point where journalism becomes nearly impossible because the distribution system actually rewards lies. But you were such a proponent of Facebook in the beginning. I am. And now I was. you are fighting so hard and ringing the alarm bells. Their you know, answer is free speech. And I think about Justice Brandeis, right? When did he say it? He said that. 1927. Exactly. The answer, like, free speech is more free speech. That doesn't work today. Not in the age of exponential lies. Not in the age of, of, at a time when, and frankly, journalists bear the brunt of this, right? Because I've never been, Don, I see the attacks, you know? It's like, we've never been at a time when we're so individually, personally vulnerable, Because information warfare uses free speech Mm. to stifle free speech. You say a lie a million times, you pound someone to silence. Um, We've got to get through this time. But but part of it is also the the failure of democratic governments to put guardrails in place, legislation on social media. This is coming up. So it started with American tech companies. Now Chinese tech companies have come in. And sorry, I'll answer your question about China. Look, uh, the Philippines is a strategic location. The South China Sea is up for grabs. Kamala Harris, the vice president, had just come from there. Mm -hmm. Biden had just come from Indonesia, right? There... Geopolitical power shift is happening as we speak, but it starts not with the conventional warfare you were showing, not with the repressive. The world, 60% of the world is now under authoritarian rule, rolled back to 1989 levels, right? It begins person to person. It begins here at home. The fact that January 6th happened, the fact that your identity politics has been targeted by Russian disinformation, not to make you believe one thing, but to just create chaos, violence, fear, hatred, us against them. In that incentive structure, what happens to our kids, right? We create a world where it is impossible to have democracy. It's impossible. I'm sorry. I, I could talk no, about this no, forever. We, you know, we, we love it. And I think the, the important thing that, you know, this whole idea about more free speech and you said that that doesn't work anymore. It's exponential. And, and, yeah. And it's like you. You can't be nice anymore about that. You have to pound and let people know that we are in a very tenuous position, especially when it comes to facts, truth, journalism. Trust. Facts, truth, trust, journalism. Like yeah. in September. Well, this is part of what I spent a whole book. I woke up at 5 a.m. every day to write because I feel like we're going off the edge. And it will happen in 2024. Yeah. If, if you don't have integrity of facts, you can't have integrity of elections. Maria. Thank you so much. We appreciate you joining us. Best Thank of luck you. to you. I mean, I can't wait to, to finish it. But Poppy yeah. is like, Poppy wants to I give it to I just had her kid. sign it for my kids when they're like <laughs> okay. in 10 years, yeah. when they can read it and understand. And hopefully the world's a better place for them. Yeah. We'll see. Thank if we you do so the right much. thing now. Thank, we you. Thank, you. Thank you. All right. So what if you could predict your risk of a heart attack or a stroke with a single chest X-ray? We're going to tell you how artificial intelligence could actually make that a reality. You were so, you. so, so sorry so I took you where I wanted you to go. Lava flows from the world's largest active volcano, causing concerns as they come within four miles of a major highway on Hawaii's Big Island. Drivers are being warned not to park along that road. Monday's eruption on Mauna Loa also sent lava cascading down a road leading to an important observatory where a critical climate tool used to measure carbon dioxide during the climate crisis has been housed for 60 years. 
Also this morning, new research suggesting that a single chest x-ray may be all you need for artificial intelligence to predict your 10-year risk of death from a heart attack or stroke. This is promising technology for millions of Americans who suffer from heart disease. It's the leading cause, as you know, of death in the United States. So joining us now to talk about this is our CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula. Doctor, this could be game-changing. Well, it could. And I think we have to understand what the context here is. And Poppy and I were just talking, you said in the intro, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death for men and women in this country. And so the holy grail of cardiology really is figuring out who is going to be at risk for having an event like a heart attack or stroke. And many times the problem is things are silent until they're not, until the day you have your heart attack and stroke. And so we really need to get a good screening tool so that we can give somebody their prediction. We can get them on the road to prevention with things like statins and lifestyle changes. So the best we have now, let's talk about what we have now, is something called a risk calculator. So when a patient comes to my office, as they did this week, and said, Doc, what are my chances of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years? They said, let me take your your information, your age, your gender, whether you smoke, what your blood pressure is, plug it into an equation and I'll give you a risk score, whether that's 5% risk of having an event in the next 10 years or 10%. The problem is we don't have all that data for every patient, so we can't always generate the risk score and it's not always 100% accurate. Enter artificial intelligence, right? So how do we improve on what we have to help us predict? Now, artificial Mm. intelligence has kind of come into the world of medicine since the 1960s. And in fact, cardiologists in many senses are leading the way when it comes to using this for heart failure prediction, for tailoring drug therapy, and now for predicting risk. So it is promising. So as, as a burgeoning hypochondriac, <laughs> like I have every, like I, like every, I know I have that. I have that. Yeah. And then Meet I my go, friend, Don. And then I go the to the doctor and the doctor's like, what are you doing here? You're <laughs> totally fine. Please go home. So, so then who does this? So how do you, does anyone go into their doctor? And so, so let's talk about this study, right? The chest yeah. x-ray study. So the, this actually was not published yet, right? It hasn't been peer reviewed. It's very preliminary. It was prevented, presented at a radiology meeting. So I want to caveat that with saying that, but it is a proof of concept, an idea that you could take a single chest X-ray, so many of us have chest X-rays in our lives, and actually use it to predict risk. So what the researchers did is they looked at 150,000 chest X-rays and developed a AI model to predict it. But then they said, let's test this. So they took 11,000 patients and they used that chest X-ray risk model, and they found that actually it correlated very well with the patients that then went on to have an actual heart attack or stroke. So there was a real association there. And then they compared it to that risk calculator that I mentioned, and it correlated well with that. In fact, it added information to that. So really, the beauty of this, if it proves to be true, is that, yes, one X-ray, which is their ubiquitous, could potentially help Mm. in the sense that you could actually get a report that says, okay, your chest X-ray is clear, but you're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Go talk to your doctor or your cardiologist. So don't go in to your doctor and say, hey, I want this test. No, and certainly don't ask for a chest X-ray yet (laughs) for screening for cardiovascular disease. Thank you, promising. doctor. Yes, but Thank promising. You. Thank, Thank you, you very much. I appreciate that. Straight ahead, a chilling report from the Pentagon. China could have a stockpile of 1,500 nuclear warheads in less than 15 years. Plus this. I have been waiting decades to do what I'm getting ready to do now. <laughs> the Rock is righting a wrong. Why the Black Adam star just bought every Snickers bar in his hometown <laughs> on 7-Eleven. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Today the U.S. beat Iran 1-0 to advance to the next round of the World Cup. Yes! U.S. 
I just hope this doesn't ruin our incredible friendship with Iran. <laughs> yep, we're on to the next round. Americans haven't been this fired up about soccer since we remembered it existed last week. <laughs> That's so good. True. Also, a big shakeup this morning in the college football playoff rankings. One powerhouse in the top four. Another is out. Andy Scholes joins us now. No, you Andy. have to say it right. Andy Scholes! Oh <laughs> on fire this morning, Andy. Andy a little soccer flair to my intro. I like it, Don. Appreciate Andy, though, that. We got to talk about we got to talk about these rankings because, you know, the college football playoff committees might have a pretty easy weekend coming up, actually. Yeah, you know, if, if the top four as is now hold, it would be an easy weekend. But here's hoping we get some chaos, right? Because that <laughs> makes it more fun. But for the first time in the college football playoffs history, USC is in the top four, so all they have to do is beat Utah on Friday night in that Pac-12 title game, and they'll be in. Georgia remaining in that top spot, followed by Michigan, who is up to number two after beating Ohio State. You know, five and six is where it's interesting at this point in the season. You know, the Buckeyes are now five after the loss to Michigan. Then it's two-loss Alabama, who is sixth, and we take a look at the weekend's schedule. You know, Georgia and Michigan, they could lose their title games and still make the playoffs. TCU's undefeated as well. But if they lose to 10th-ranked Kansas State, that is probably where the debate would begin. Would Ohio State with one loss then get in over TCU? If TCU and USC were to somehow both lose, would Alabama somehow sneak in? A two-loss team has never made it to the college football playoffs, so we should be in for a fun weekend, guys. And uh, Caitlin, I know I'm, you're certainly hoping that uh, both TCU and USC w uh, were to somehow lose. That's Alabama's only path to get in. You know, the Tide, both their losses on the very last play of the game, they could easily be undefeated right now, and they've only missed the playoffs once in their history. Yeah, I know. It's hard. But Andy, you, you brought your son to the Alabama game this weekend. I saw you. Did he have fun? He had a blast. Uh, you know, the Iron Bowl for his first college football game, certainly a good one to take him to. Yeah, you've set the bar really high. <laughs> Thank you, Andy Scholes. He's saying there's a chance for LSU. Did you hear that? I heard that. I didn't hear that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll bring it back later to dissect that. Thanks, Andy. All right. All right, Apple Music this morning is revealing its biggest songs of the year. Justin Bieber, no surprise, topping the charts. We'll tell you what else is on there in a moment. Was that that was um, fans like celebrating watching our show? No, yeah, today. you wish. Is that what it was? Good you morning. Yeah, they're so excited. I mean, that's how people at home react to us. No? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Beers in their hands as Fans across the U.S. <laughs> screaming, the top of their lungs, celebrating. This is honestly what happened. The goal and the win against Iran. But will the star player be ready for the knockout rounds. We're going to talk about that. We're going to speak with the head coach of the U.S. men's national soccer team. Also, tornadoes, at least 20 of them tearing through the South overnight. Millions of Americans were not to let their guard down this morning. And also this morning, New York's mayor is making a major new push, authorizing first responders to potentially commit those who are suffering a mental health crisis. Maybe without their consent, we debate whether or not that is the right approach and what's driving this decision. But first this morning, several southern states are on high alert after 20 tornadoes swept through the region overnight. 
In my home state of Alabama, powerful winds pushing debris into the air just west of Huntsville. Four people were injured. Multiple animals have been found dead in Louisiana's Caldwell Parish. Heavy rains in Mississippi's Monroe County left a bridge washed out, a vehicle stuck in the creek. CNN's Ryan Young is joining us live this morning from Lowndes County, Mississippi. Ryan, I see that church behind you. The steeple has been blown off, just a sign of the destruction that happened. What other damage have you seen as the sun is starting to come up there? Yeah, Caitlin, we're an hour behind you, so we're still waiting for that first light to kind of pop up here. We've been driving all throughout the night, and I can tell you we've seen uh, a little pockets of trees being down. This is the largest structure that we've seen so far, that church steeple that's been knocked off in Lowndes County, which is near the Alabama line. After our last live shot, we actually drove around to see what else was going on, and we went, ran into some state troopers who were blocking roads saying power lines were down. But, of course, the big assessment will be coming in the next few hours. When you see a steeple like this one, one of the things you have to know is that the path of the storm came through this area. So we tracked it all the way back through here, went that direction and saw several trees down in neighborhoods back that direction and what looked like more power lines. We've also been told that a firehouse may have been damaged in the area. But as you know, that first light is going to be so very important. With this storm happening late in the season, all night last night, people were being warned about these potential storms. 20 of them, they believe, tornadoes that dropped down in several different locations. So we expect more damage assessments being done throughout the day. But right now, we're just waiting to see how bad it really is. Yeah, if you live in the South, you expect these kinds of storms. That, right? It's just the worst when they happen overnight when people are sleeping. That's when it's the hardest Absolutely. to deal with, as you know. Ryan Young, we'll check back in with you as the sun is coming up. Thank you. So it was an epic win for the U.S. men's soccer team at the World Cup. Kristen Polisic sacrificing his body to score the winning goal in Team USA's heart-stopping 1-0 victory over Iran. The U.S. team moving to, on to the knockout round, but they may have to do it without their 24-year-old leader. So we're going to speak live with the U.S. men's coach in just a moment for an exclusive interview. But first, Amanda Davis reports from Doha, Qatar. In an all-or-nothing showdown between the United States and Iran, Christian Pulisic secured Team USA's victory with the lone goal of the match at the 38-minute mark. Scores! But it cost him the rest of the game, suffering a pelvic injury after colliding with Iran's goalie, only able to watch the second half after being taken to the hospital as a precaution. So who is Christian Pulisic, the man known to soccer fans around the world as Captain America, who led Team USA to the round of 16? Pulisic made his USA team debut in 2016 at just 17 years old, becoming the youngest US player to appear in a World Cup qualifying match. However, Pulisic and the U.S. men's team suffered heartbreak in 2018 after failing to secure a spot at the World Cup. I was obviously so upset, so emotional, but, uh, you know, looking back on it, that motivated me that much more. Now the 24-year-old is considered one of the most talented American soccer players of all time. He was born in Hershey, Pennsylvania, playing for the U.S. Soccer Development Academy before moving overseas as a teenager. His first stop, Germany, starring for Borussia Dortmund. Then to England in a blockbuster transfer to Chelsea, a move that cost the Premier League giants $73 million, making him the most expensive soccer player to date from the US. 
Pulisic went on to win the Champions League title with Chelsea in 2021, the second US soccer player to do so. But now his World Cup fate is up in the air. The US national soccer team announcing, quote, Christian Pulisic has been diagnosed with a pelvic contusion and his status is day to day. But a pumped up Pulisic had different thoughts, apparently posting from the hospital, so proud of my guys, I'll be ready for Saturday. So a huge congratulations to Team USA. What a difference in mood to that tense political build-up to that game. Uh, a huge opportunity is how US men's captain Tyler Adams is putting it. And speaking of opportunity, a fantastic one for French referee Stephanie Frappard coming up. She will lead the first all-female officiating team at a men's World Cup, taking charge of Germany against Costa Rica on Thursday. And from the little uh, exchanges I've had with Stephanie over the years, she will not want the excitement, the hype and the build-up. She will just want to get on with the job in hand. I'm surprised Amanda Davis still has her voice. Reporting from the World Cup. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. Well, President Biden even stopped what he was doing yesterday to celebrate Team USA's big win. This was during a visit to a manufacturing facility in Michigan. That's a big game, man. Well, I spoke. Ripping up the manufacturing facility. <laughs> exactly. The U.S. men's team there head he coach, Greg Bearhalter, joins us now from Qatar. It's great to have you. Congratulations. Hey, guys. So well deserved. Thank you very much. Don's been screaming, goal. <laughs> goal. All morning. Uh, let's start with Christian Pulisic. What does he mean to the team? How's he doing? Can you confirm he'll be on the field Saturday? So we're, he, he seems to be doing good. Um, just spoke with him a couple minutes ago. And we're going to see what he can do on the training field tomorrow. And hopefully he'll be, he'll be ready for the game against Netherlands. But in terms of his contribution to the group, you know, I, I've said all along, when one of your most talented players is also one of your hardest workers, you know you're in a good spot. And that's, that simplifies Christian. Well, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> Feel good, you know. I think it's just about focus. You know, we're like we're not done. It's nice to get to the to the next round, but, but we want to keep going. Um, the, we we had two tournaments that we were looking at: the group stage tournament and the knockout tournament. And now we're here in the knockout. I just want to keep this thing rolling. And coach, I mean, the job was simple yesterday. You wanted to get in there. You wanted to win. This team pulled it off. You just talked about the role Christian played in that, obviously, in his condition. You know, what is what are you telling the team privately? What did you say to them as they came off the field after that huge victory? You know, it's just that uh, enjoy the moment. Um, it was a big moment. I think it was complicated by the fact that Iran just needed a tie. So that that made it um, challenging. But uh oh, coach Greg Bearhalter, uh, we lost. He froze. 
We're going to get him back? Should yeah. we give it a second? What do we do? We're just going to be very transparent. He froze. And we well, want, we want, we've been trying to talk to him. We wanted to talk to him. We'll so try long. to get him back because this is so, so crucial to see what they're going to do next. That's what everyone's watching. And yeah. obviously that's team mentality. You don't focus yeah. too much on the win. You quickly move on and look to what's ahead. They were playing the Netherlands, obviously. And he, so this is interesting. He played coach. He played for the Netherlands for six seasons. Yeah. Right. And, and he's one of the first veterans to actually to be the coach, yeah. I believe. And so this is what makes this victory so What's amazing is everyone watching. Interesting to me is like even after all of this, as we saw all the players, like they it, they put so much into this. But even when they lose, there's still the camaraderie that they have that we you sometimes mean the, don't the, see. The comforting at yeah, the, the end. Yeah, the comforting at the end because they know even the members of the opposing team know how hard this is, and especially they knew how hard it was for the Iranian team, who's, who's quite quite frankly going to go back home, and they they don't know what they're going to face with their families, the possibility of even imprisonment and being punished and it's just this one is just amazing amazing well and that's a big aspect of this is also something to ask coach was we're trying to to get him back here is how as a coach do you handle both of those things because those are huge you want to focus on the task at hand which is they went there to win this is big for them but also how do you talk to your team about handling these really sensitive geopolitical issues and what that looks like because with iran you know that's such a massive aspect of this well apparently we're not going to get him back so we're very happy for the U.S. team. Uh, we hope that the Iranian team, all the members, fare well there. And we'll try to get the coach back if we can. If we can't, then Maybe congratulations. Maybe a little bit later this hour. Yeah, congratulations to them. And, yeah. um, and we're rooting for Christian. Hopefully yeah, he makes Christian a recovery and he gets ballistic. to come back to the Netherlands game. Also, though, today we'll tell you about something. You know, This was major, what happened in Washington courtroom yesterday. It was a landmark verdict for the, DC, for the Justice Department in this D.C. courtroom. The founder there you see on the left of the Oath Keepers, one of his top associates is on the right. They were both found guilty of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep former President Trump in office. Obviously, that culminated in what happened on January 6th. The jury found three other defendants in the case not guilty of sedition. They acquitted Rhodes of two separate conspiracy charges. All five that you see there were found guilty of obstructing an official proceeding. And the reason this matters, there has been so many developments in this, it's almost hard to keep up with it. But this is the first of three seditious conspiracy cases that we are going to hear. It was seen as a huge test for the Justice Department and their ability to hold these Capitol rioters accountable. So joining us now to talk about this is John Avalon, CNN's senior political analyst and author of Wingnuts, Mm -hmm. Extremism in the Age of Obama, the perfect person to talk about this. What was your reaction as that verdict came down? This is a huge verdict. Um, It's a huge verdict for the United States for accountability for January 6th, because frankly, if what happened on January 6th, and particularly Stuart Rhodes in the Oath Keeper's role, isn't seditious conspiracy, what is? And yet, that charge is incredibly difficult for the DOJ to land. It's only been successfully used twice in the last hundred years. This is a law put in place after the Civil War, and it has been tried against right-wing militia groups in 2010, group from Michigan, another group in the late 80s, group in the 1940s, all unsuccessfully. Nazi. They called Nazi it a dusty. Nazi. Yeah, they so this is, this is a high bar, and the DOJ met it. They called it a dusty it. law that they thought would not, that he would not be convicted on because it is, as you said, it's been rarely, people have been rarely convicted of it, and it's and been yet, so long. And the conviction came down, and that's because these laws that were put in place after the Civil War were designed to actually be future-oriented as well as to ensure accountability in the wake of the Civil War for the Confederacy. So is that why, the question is why then this time? Why this time? Because you had an armed conspiracy to try to overthrow the government or stop much more than official proceeding, the peaceful transfer of power. Mm -hmm. And to date, most of the folks who invaded January 6th, the Capitol that day, have been charged with obstruction of an official proceeding. 
That's the lowest bar, right? This isn't, this isn't a post office rename. This isn't bingo night. This is designed to stop the certification of the election. And that was clearly their intent. We, we just told folks about your, your book. Uh, yeah. not, in, the, in the age of Obama, this the Oath Keepers was started during that time, too. Yeah. In their words, resist a tyrannical president talking about President Obama in their view. There's an irony here. There's a massive irony. So I began covering the Oath Keepers months after they were founded in the spring of 2009. And a lot of my reporting came in that book, Wingnuts, which itself is a decade old. But it's all about extremism in American politics. And, and to see the group go from that initial impulse, which was allegedly about getting members of law enforcement, former military, to defend the republic against the actions of a tyrannical president. And which was Barack Obama. And to see all the militia groups that sprung up in the early years of the Obama administration, not coincidentally the first black president, because a lot of militia movement is about resisting multiracial democracy. Yeah, why was he a tyrant? <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> but, but, but this was the fears that were stoked. And the irony was, in the arc of history 12 years later, they're defending a president who is trying to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power. And, and I think that just speaks to the, the, the arc of this group and, and the dangers of the temptation of this militia movement, which has a lot of members. Yeah. So this accountability is key. If you look back at American history, accountability for the top of militia organizations like this is key. You know, the rank and file, many cases are being misled, but it's the leadership that needs to be accountable. And this will send a cascading sign going forward for these folks. It's a big deal. All right. Thank John, you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, voters in Georgia are coming out day after day in record numbers to vote early ahead of next week's Senate runoff between Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Roughly 800,000 voters have already cast those early ballots, including a record breaking 309,000 just yesterday. Compare that to 2016, 2018. The previous single-day records have been smashed. Joining us now is Georgia Secretary of State Chief Operating Officer Gabe Sterling. Gabe, it's good to have you. Thanks very much for, for taking the time this morning. Glad to be here. Um, initially, so a lot, a lot of this early voting happened on the Saturday that wasn't allowed previously that Republicans were fighting against. Then the Supreme Court in Georgia said, no, you know, that you can vote that day. You opposed that. Uh, allowing voting on that day. You thought it was antithetical to the law. What do you think now? Well, it was antithetical to the law. The law literally said you can't have voting on a Saturday after a Thursday for the reasons that were problematic to begin with. It was the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and counties had a hard time getting people to open up because they couldn't find poll workers because most people are with their families. It was passed in 2016 for that specific purpose. It was passed with 80% of Democrats and 90% of Republicans. There was nothing weird about it. Now, as an election administrator, I always want to have as much voting available as possible, but we also have to follow the law. Follow the law in 2020, got applauded by a lot of people following it in 2022. But once the court said, you vote on Saturday, we work with the counties to provide as many resources as we could to make sure those people could vote. Can you help us understand, I want, I want our viewers and you to listen to something that Senator Warnock said about this push to, to, to not allow voting on that day. And just want your response on the other side. Here he was a few days ago. We filed a lawsuit so, so you could vote on Saturday. They filed a petition asking for emergency relief. What you ought to ask yourself is, what do they want relief from? You, you want relief from people voting? What do you make of that? 
Well, he's trying to stoke up his crowd to come out and vote and say they're being suppressed. The reality was, I'm not going to undo my Republican side of this. I'm sure the Republicans said the only counties are going to open up are going to be Democrat counties, and it's just not fair because it was going to be the rich Republic, rich Democrat counties like Fulton, DeKalb, Cobb, and Gwinnett that would have been opening, and it ended up those were the ones that did. So I understand the political motivations behind the people doing that because you were not going to have the Republican counties of Houston, Columbia, and you know Rabin opening up because they didn't have the money or the resources to do it. So they were, I think they were trying to keep the playing field even and fair. Now, everybody this week is mandated to have early voting in every single county, all 159 of them. So, Gabe, let me just ask you that you say that you believe that it was wrong, but the courts did not decide that. So I'm wondering what the disconnect is. Obviously, it is. You know, they just, they decided that, that it should open after, you know, the Thursday. So what is the disconnect here? You don't support the action, even though the courts decided that? Well, no, I'm supporting the action because the court said it. The reality was there was two interpretations of the law. Our interpretation, I think, was the best for the overall law. You have one Fulton County judge who you know, won an election to be elected in Fulton County who said, I'm going to go for this other interpretation of the law that, from our point of view, was a big stretch. But they did it, and the, the courts spoke, and then we enforced the law as the courts interpreted it. Now, I still think their interpretation is wrong, and we can always have arguments around that. This was not done for anything other than following the law as written and passed by a majority of Democrats or Republicans alike. They didn't like the outcome of what they did, which is probably unintentional, but that's the law. We don't get a choice in our office to decide whether or not to enforce the law or not. We always have to enforce it. That's the situation. But once the court spoke, we said, fine, open up Saturday. Now, Republicans, we stopped the appeals after the appeals court. We said, you know what, there's create too much confusion. Let's just go forward and let these people vote on Saturday because that's what the appeals court said. Now, the Republican Party went ahead and took it all the way to the Supreme Court, which we didn't because we said it's going to cause too much confusion at this late date. Gabe, I've got two questions for you. I was there on the ground in Georgia on Monday. A lot of people out there casting their votes. What do you think is driving this record early turnout? Well, the condensed timeline is going to be part of it, no question. But historically in Georgia, we've always had four-week runoffs. My boss, Secretary Raffensperger, won a four-week runoff just four weeks, four years ago in 2018. And the second thing is, we're the only game in town. We're the bell of the ball. Every political dollar in America is coming here right now, both on the left and the right. So we had people going knocking on doors this weekend on Saturday during the Iron Bowl and the Georgia Georgia Tech game, which they weren't from around here, didn't know any better not to do that. But they're going to go. They're, they're trying to pull every person they can out to these things. And I got another question about something that Georgia Democrats want investigated. And this is on some CNN reporting that Herschel Walker, the Republican in this race, has is getting a tax break in Texas, saying it's his primary residence there. There have been questions about whether he is running afoul of Georgia's rules when it comes to establishing residency for not just voting, but for running for office. What is your sense of whether or not he is within the margins of what's right or if he is breaking some kind of some kind of rules here with this? It's not really our office's thing to investigate that. I know the Attorney General's office has an official complaint, but there are ways to challenge residency inside the law. And it's kind of funny they're doing it at this late hour because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of opposition researchers out there who've had this for a while. But again, he's on the ballot. People are casting votes right now. It's up to a court to decide whether or not he's qualified to meet, the, meet it or not. The one thing I will say about residency, it's really squishy. It's kind of like, what's your state of mind? If you, if you intend to be here as a resident, that's, we treat you as a resident. But this happens in other uh, jurisdictional cases sometimes to see if people are allowed to run for office in our state.
Yeah, it's, it, I mean, he, as recently as last year, 2021, he used it as a rental property, and he and his spouse were receiving money for it. Can I ask you about um, Jordan? Well, one thing, real quickly. Do you think that what happened on Saturday with the voting, you think it'll, it might change the outcome of the election? Do you think it actually helps one side over the other? No, not necessarily. I think it probably was a little more Democrat because of the counties that were open. Okay. But I think now that we have a case open, it's going to... It'll even out. It helps election administration some because it's going to take some pressure off these five days in election day. Are you and finally, are you watching Arizona? Have you been watching Arizona to see what is going on there? What What do you make of what happened with the legislature and certifying the vote and the the sort of nuttiness that went on around it? Out of a morbid curiosity, yeah, I think in Cochise County, those two have some very serious problems because they have a law that basically says you have to certify or you're committing a felony, and they can't even find any lawyers to represent them on this one because they, I think it's just nutball crazy town wow. that they're questioning a county. That's why they're not going to certify their own election. Mm-hmm. Quote of the morning there. Yeah. Nutball. Sam Sterling. You what was it? Nutball, nutball crazy, crazy, town. crazy town. Speaking of his next five yeah. days ahead of him. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with everything. And Go ahead. One more big thing. Yeah. Go dogs! We're going to have a championship no. again this year, guys. Do Come not on. do that to Caitlin. Come on. Hey, I'm an LSU Tiger, and I'm with you. Go dogs! That's the oh only time God. you ever hear me say that. <laughs> I'm sick. Thanks, Gabe. Uh, we, have a great day. Thank you. We couldn't hear what he said. Sorry, but something about dogs. Georgia Bulldogs. All right, enough college football talk, even for me. <laughs> Next, we've got a giant leap for China. This is in the race to space. Three of their astronauts, as you see here, lifting off for a trip to their new space station. Plus, New York City's mayor empowering first responders to potentially commit those suffering from mental health, mental health uh, crisis. He wants to commit them involuntarily. We're going to talk about that. More CNN this morning to come after the break. In a major achievement for China's space program, three astronauts lifted off to China's newly completed, nearly completed space station on Tuesday. They docked at the station named uh, the Heavenly Palace about seven hours later. This marks the beginning of a long-term space presence for China, also ending the International Space Station's role as the sole venue for human occupancy in the Earth's orbit. So joining us now to talk more about this is CNN's space and defense correspondent, Kristen Fisher. Kristen, what does all of this mean? Caitlin, it is tremendously complicated uh, to keep people in space alive and working continuously, meaning that there is someone up there at a space station nonstop. Up until now, only the United States and its partners have been able to do that up at the International Space Station, and they've done it successfully for more than two decades. But what you're seeing there on your screen, that all changed yesterday with that moment right there. Uh, China launching this rocket with three astronauts or Chinese Taikonauts, as they're called. I love that name. Uh, And then that crew, when they got to China's new space station, they're going to switch out with the crew that's been up there. And so, Caitlin, what this really means uh, is it really just solidifies China's stance as a major space power, one that truly rivals uh, the United States. And that's it. That's the question, I think, essentially, is where the international space system, what that looks like compared to this. So if you're If you're someone who's well-versed in this, what are are there any key differences here? So 
China's space station is a little bit smaller. It's only designed to house about three Taikonauts, whereas uh, on a really busy day, the International Space Station can uh, be a home to about 10 astronauts from the United States, Russia, and around the world. Uh, but the fundamental design is fundamentally the same. There are various modules that are then assembled together in orbit. And what they're intended to do, Caitlin, uh, that's really what's important here, because one, it's going to allow China to conduct all sorts of experiments in microgravity, and who knows what kind of experiments the Chinese are going to be able to do uh, that the U.S. were not. And then finally, it's going to give them all of the training that they need to do what they really want, which is to build a base on the South Pole of the Moon, which incidentally is what the United States is trying to do, too, with its new Artemis program. Yeah. Caitlin. It'll be fascinating to watch. Kristen, thank you. Thanks, Kristen. Well, China is expanding its nuclear arsenal faster than U.S. officials had even predicted. A new Pentagon report found China's stockpile of nuclear warheads has doubled in just two years. Back in 2020, the U.S. estimated this expansion would be achieved within a decade. At this rate, China could more than triple that arsenal by 2035. CNN anchor and chief national security correspondent Jim Shudo is with us from Washington. Jim, two years, that's it? Yeah, no question. I mean, put this in the category of assumptions that the U.S. and the West have made about China that turned out to be wrong. And frankly, it's a long list. But let's look at warheads here, because this speaks to China's projection of military power around the world. Right now, in 2020, rather, the U.S. put the number of total Chinese nuclear warheads in the 200s. It has already doubled in the span of two years. This is a figure that the U.S. did not believe China would reach until the middle of the next decade. So they are moving much faster than the U.S. and the West believe they would. And this is key. They are testing as they go. In the last year, they've tested ballistic missiles 135 times. That is a higher number of tests than the rest of the world combined for ballistic missile technology. Again, you got the warheads and you got the missiles that deliver those warheads. They are testing those missiles. At the same time, they're also testing and perfecting new technologies, particularly a hypersonic missile, many times faster than the ICBMs that have been really the chief nuclear weapon of war for decades. They tested one last year, flew around the entire planet, uh, and it was accurate. And the key to that was that was faster, too, than the U.S. expected as well. They just did not know China had that technology already, mm. and they fear it's ahead of where the U.S. technology is. Mm. So, Jim, in Washington, the, how big of a concern are, are China's nuclear investments? It's a big concern because this goes back to those false assumptions we've had about China for a number of years. For, for years, the U.S. and the West believed China had a nuclear arsenal. They wanted to keep it small, a weapon of last resort. Now their fear is they're expanding that arsenal because they want to use it as a way to project power around the world. Where in, well, let me quote from the report that describes exactly what they're talking about here. The PRC presents the most consequential and systemic challenge to U.S. national security and the free and open international system. We talk about Russia and Ukraine a lot, major threat. Wow. But for years, the U.S. has said China's the number one threat. And what are they concerned about in the near term? They're concerned that China uses its nuclear umbrella to provide a greater ability to invade that place, Taiwan. Yeah. The concerns about invading Taiwan are real, and they fear that China will hide behind its nuclear umbrella to do that. Yep. Mr. Shudo, thank you very much. We appreciate Thanks. that. Good to see you. So New York City Mayor Eric Adams ordering the city's first responders to intervene when someone is suffering a mental health crisis. Will this help, or is it going to hurt the rising crime rates in the city? We're going to discuss all of it straight ahead.
Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, November 30th. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We have a lot to get to. First responders right here in New York City ordered to intervene when someone is suffering a mental health crisis and even commit them involuntarily if necessary. Also, Twitter's former head of trust and safety this morning sounding the alarm, warning the social media platform is less safe now under Elon Musk. And Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes found guilty of seditious conspiracy. We will be joined by his ex-wife who disavowed the right-wing militia group that she helped create. So New York City's first responders, including members of the police and fire departments, they're going to now be expected to enforce a state law that allows them to intervene when someone is suffering a mental health crisis. And here's the important part of this. They're now empowered to potentially commit those people involuntarily. This is what the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, has to say about it. A common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. This myth must be put to rest. Going forward, we will make every effort to assist those who are suffering from mental illness and whose illness is endangering them by preventing them from meeting their basic human needs. So this is part of an effort to slow the rise of crime in the city. Although the murder rate has dropped over the last year, rape, robberies, and assaults have all increased. Crime in general has gone up 31%. So joining us now, Jumani Williams. He is New York City's uh, public advocate and a former NYC councilman in Brooklyn. He supports the mayor's proposal. And Andy Burshad, he's a former NYPD detective opposed to this measure. We're so happy to have both of you. And thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's interesting that former NYPD, you're opposed to it, and you support what the mayor has to say. So let's, we'll get to both of them. But let's talk about why do you support this? Obviously, there's a rise in crime. Murder is down. But overall, you see what's happening on the subway. We all watch news. We see the images that are coming. And we saw what happened politically, people running on, on this. Why do you support it? So w- let's be clear. There are parts of the mayor's plan that uh, I do support. Uh, in general, I think people, some people will have to be removed involuntarily. Uh, what I am concerned about is some of what the mayor said. And so anytime you have more information about involuntarily being removed than the care that's actually needed, then I actually do have some concerns about that. And so uh, we are going to be sending a letter actually to get some questions to clarify what exactly do you mean, who's going to make decisions and when. Because another concern is if it's a police officer that's making these decisions, we also have some additional concerns. Okay. And why do you not support this? Uh, Again, like the advocate said, it's not that I entirely disagree, I I disagree with parts of it. I think to send in a uniformed officer to make determination for possible mental uh, awareness or problems that are going on, we're going to be held accountable. And with the limited training that we're getting, we're trying to put them into a system that, that clearly needs addressing. You know, don't mistake that at all. Um, by putting through with mental health teams that are going out, and I think the, the problem is there that needs to be addressed. However, through training, education, continued throughout, not only for the uniformed police officers and EMS, yeah. Um, by changing these laws, it's it's almost kidnapping. Well, just one more thing. It's almost New York, it's almost New York City. It's, yeah, it's yeah. almost kidnapping. It, That's it, his. But this this is where I'm going. New York City, the people in New York City want the crime to stop. They want to see the people with mental health problems, mental illness, 
off of the subway, off of the streets, be taken care of, but also they don't want to be confronted by them as well. That is a real issue for the people of New York City. You may see it as kidnapping. A New York citizen who wants to be safe will see it as it's time for these people to be taken off the street. They need help and we need to be safe. A hundred percent. When I say that it's kidnapping and serving the city as a paramedic, when I take a patient who is aware of himself, if I know my name, I'm able to think clearly to some degree, whatever we decide to gauge it at, I have the right to refuse transport. Mm -hmm. If I'm a uniformed police officer and I'm like, Mr. Lemon, I'm sorry, you're going to have to come with me. No, my name is Mr. Lemon. This is November and I would prefer not to go to the hospital right now. But according to the new guidelines, potentially, I have to remove you whether you would like to go or not. It it sounds like one of your concerns also is the cops can't do this, too. We have so much on our plate. Are we going to really be properly trained to do this? Can we can we add this? I think, obviously, training is paramount. I know that we put it out. Is there enough training to go through it? Are we looking at situations potentially when a situation goes badly? You know, if I go to take a a patient that doesn't want to go or against their will, now I'm taking them involuntarily. What is the ramifications for the uniformed officer, EMS provider that's going? I also want to say, Don, you said something that I think is important. Um, And I think New York City residents want to be safe and they want to be able to use the subway, including my 14-year-old, including my wife. But if you ask them, they don't want... Uh, police to be arresting people for having a mental health crisis. They want people to get assistance and a continuum of care. The problem with this plan is it doesn't spell out what the continuum of care is. And so we don't even know how much funding is going into that versus additional police, who, by the way, don't have the training to make a determination whether someone should be taken. There's a difference between arresting, though, and detaining someone and putting them, I mean, not taking them to jail, you're offering them assistance. Well, think about this, what's happening. Uh, you, you can, quote, unquote, involuntarily put someone in the hospital for two to three days. What happens after that? Right. Uh, what's going to happen after that? Are we doing a cycle to uh, pretend we're doing something more than we are? And so people want to see... Uh, we see this sometimes with homelessness. Uh, you want to solve the problem is different than I don't want to see the problem. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that people get the care they deserve. What about people who call, who are in an apartment or who are in a, who are in a home? The main crux of this is we have to divorce a law enforcement response from a medical response. And people need medical care. Law enforcement should be there in case they're called and need an assistance. But the problem with many of these plans is we're putting the law enforcement first, not putting the care in the continuum of care that's needed. And that's what's so important about what you said here, is that this is these are people who are presumed to be mentally ill. And often, as, you, as we've seen play out many times throughout the country, Arresting someone, even detaining them, putting them in the car, they view that the same way. That has the risk of escalating the situation. And I think what you're pointing out here is the gray area. Adams seemed to suggest that yesterday. or He referenced that. He talked about the gray area. But he said it's letting people slip through the cracks. Do you think he has a point when he, when he says that? What's uh, slipping through the cracks is we don't have the continuum of care. And so the state hasn't reopened almost uh, more than half of the beds that we had. What is slipping through the cracks is a plan that doesn't say where's the funding going to be for the mobile uh, crisis team. There are some good things in there. We don't know if they're going to be funded. We have less respite centers now than we did before the pandemic. Why did New York City in its budget last month cut $12 million from this group called the Behavioral Health Emergency Assistance Response Division, or BHERD, that is specifically to go to emergency situations to deal with mental health instead of police? So uh, one is, even that program, unfortunately, almost 80% of police ties 
police were being sent. But the question is, why is that being cut? The, all the questions, why is almost all the agencies being cut except for an agency like the NYPD? And the so, facilities being closed. It's been, look, I've been living in New York City for a long time. They have been closing facilities left and right for a long time. Uh, and also during COVID, they let people out because they didn't want people... people mental health facilities. Mental, yeah, mental health facilities. They let people out because they didn't want them, you know, possibly getting COVID, right? They didn't want to have a pandemic on their own, much as similar to what happened with the nursing homes. So the issue is, is what he's saying, is it, are they not getting at the root of the problem? Is this the back end of it where someone has an issue and then you're coming in on the back end and you're trying to detain or arrest or hospitalize them when you should be doing I, it up front? I think it's a Band-Aid on a waterfall. Okay. Hmm. Right? If, to put it in bluntly. Um, we're going out and we, they spoke about multiple times for care, multiple times, as Mr. Jamani uh, said, it's it falling through the cracks. How much is it? If we're looking back at, well, they've been... Uh, treated several times, and now we're going to look at them long-term. What is the plan for that? We have criminals, as we talked about, what the New York City residents don't want to see criminals, but there are multiple criminals that have multiple offenses that constantly get back out. So let's just move it over to mental illness, which is a disease. It needs attention, and they need help, right? They talked about outpatient care. A lot of people, if you go into shelters, they don't want to be there. They don't, you know, I take this medicine, and it makes me feel funny, so I'm not going to take it anymore. And then what happens? Their progression gets progressively worse, and then we find them in situations where we hope they don't. You're a former NYPD detective. I think the key question here is, do you think the police can make the right call on something like this? I think on a case-to-case case basis, I think through further education and enforcement from the department with it. If I, if I tell, again, if I tell a patient that, okay, you're going to have to come with me, whether we call it arresting, removing them from custody, we're taking away their freedom. Right. One minute I was on the subway platform or in my home or on the street. And now I'm saying you can no longer do that because I feel that you need to be evaluated. I think the real answer is we shouldn't ask them to. Why are we asking police to make a medical decision? And if not them, we, who? So we have people who are trained to do this. We put out a report just last week updating a report we did in 2019 with a whole infrastructure of how we can get this done. But Jumani, when people call 911, when people have an issue, they don't, you know, there's... We shouldn't is, call 911. What is it? If someone has a mental health crisis, we need a separate number to call. I understand that. Yeah. But when you're, if you're, if I'm on a, I don't know, in, on the street or in a taxi, in, in a train, it's hard, sometimes it's hard, you don't have connectivity there, yeah. and something happens, people automatically call 911, and the and police the are going to come. That's so reality. most folks, when they see someone, they'll actually say, I think they're having uh, a mental health breakdown, will say, I don't want police. Now, if you think you need a police officer, you should call 911. But if you think you don't, you don't even have the option to call someone else. So you have people who have been killed when they said, all I wanted was a medical assistance for my son or for a family member who was having a crisis. What we should be doing is empowering uh, medical professionals and peers who know what's going on, who understand what's going on, and they can help make the decision of whether or not an officer is needed, whether or not someone I needs I can hear people who are watching now saying, that all sounds good. But when I'm, in the when I'm confronting someone or being confronted by someone and my life is in danger, I'm not going through, like, does this person have a mental issue? Does it have... I'm just speaking I for... I think that's absolutely correct. But, right? but, but we shouldn't talk about the small percentage of those calls versus what's being talked about now. Right, so right, it's right. been pretty clear that it's the, the, that what was said was that it doesn't have to be someone in danger or someone's life in danger. So there can be a whole spread of things that people can call for. But New Yorkers, by the way, as much as people don't understand, they're actually caring. And so very often they want someone to get help. 
The problem is this plan doesn't lay out the help. It focuses a lot on the involuntary removal. And so we have to get some additional questions answered. And the reason this is so important, I just wanted to say, is that this isn't just a New York problem. California is dealing with this. So is Washington State. So are many places. This is a big national conversation. So, So, guys, we wish we could spend an hour with you. Why don't you come back? few months. Let's see how this goes, what happens, what needs to change. Come back, okay? We can do it. By, by the way, the people who need the care the most are going to be black and brown New Yorkers who yes. can't get that care. Thank you for saying that. Thank yes. you very much. Come back. Thank you, Thank you both. Thank you all for having us. Ahead, an experimental drug appears to slow progression of Alzheimer's, but there are some really big safety concerns. We'll tell you about them. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Is this a possible breakthrough for dementia? There is a new Alzheimer's drug in clinical trial, and it appears to slow the progression of the disease. But the treatment is also raising some major concerns about side effects and safety. Our Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Whenever you hear that headline, so many people get their hopes up because so many people have family members impacted by Alzheimer's. How promising is it? So, Poppy, we definitely want to temper those expectations. This drug does have some promise. It is in no way a cure for Alzheimer's. It is not going to save the person who you love who has Alzheimer's now. So let's take a look at what they did in this study. They took about 1,800 people who were in the early stages of Alzheimer's. They were between the ages of 50 and 90. They put them in two groups. Some got a placebo. Some got the drug. The ones that got the drug saw a 27% slower rate of cognitive decline. In other words, they could interview and sort of test these people, and they saw a 27% slower rate of cognitive decline. They also saw that amyloid levels uh, were lower in the group that got the drug. Those are the plaques, sort of the classic signs of Alzheimer's. So they found that amyloid levels are lower. The million-dollar question here, guys, is this. Those two things, is that enough to make a difference for someone with Alzheimer's? So first of all, it took 18 months to get to that point. It took 18 months to see these improvements. Would you see a difference? Would your grandparent, you know, grandfather, grandmother, mother, father, would they be different? Would they feel better? Would you notice a difference? Would they notice a difference? Is it worth it? considering this risk that I'm going to tell you about. And this is a big, big issue. So they found that folks who got the drug were much more likely to have side effects. They found that 17% of the folks who got the drug had brain bleeding, 12% had brain swelling. Some of the folks who got a placebo also had those two things, but a much, much smaller percentage. It's a high percentage. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much. For anyone interested, you can go to CNN.com, find out a lot more there. Caitlin. All right. This morning, big news, because the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers has been found guilty of seditious conspiracy for the role that he played in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We're going to speak with his ex-wife, who is weighing in about him facing consequences in what she says is the first time. Good morning to you. Or I could just Ooh. say good morning. The Irish? Uh, I know, did it become Irish all of a sudden? No. <laughs> it is Wednesday, November 30th. Welcome to CNN This Morning, and we have a lot to get to. So this is the game-winning goal. Sending the U.S. to the knockout rounds for the first time in eight years. 
We're going to speak to Walker Zimmerman. He's a star defender on the team. That is straight ahead. Oh, my God. He is the star. Also this morning, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, as you see him there, he has been convicted of seditious conspiracy. His ex-wife, she was also once an Oath Keepers member, is going to join us live to talk about what that landmark verdict from yesterday means. Also, in a new interview, Twitter's former head of trust and safety says the company is less safe under Elon Musk. But first, we're going to start this morning with what is happening on Capitol Hill. You see all of the lawmakers there meeting with President Biden, Democrats and Republicans coming together and preparing to act to pass legislation that would avert a nationwide rail strike next week. President Biden called on the top leaders to come together as he is scrambling to keep them from walking off the job, something he said could be devastating to the economy. I ask uh, the four top leaders in Congress whether they'd be willing to come in and talk about what we're going to do between now and Christmas in terms of legislation. And there's a lot to do, including uh, resolving the train strike, the train, uh, the, uh, what we're doing now. And, uh, and Congress, I think, has to act to prevent it. It's not an easy call, but I think we have to do it. The economy's at risk. Melanie Zanona is live for CNN this morning on Capitol Hill. Melanie, it's not often you see Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and President Biden all in one room together. But he had a pretty unmistakable message here, even if it's coming from a president who promised to be the most pro-union president. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think there's a general understanding that Biden ultimately decided that the economic risk was too great. But the deal that he is asking Congress to codify is running into some resistance from both the right and the left. On the right, you have some Republicans who are just wary of getting involved in a dispute involving private companies. And then on the left, you have some progressives who don't like that this deal does not include 15 days of paid sick leave. So that is why in the House, they have decided on this two-vote system today in order to appease progressives without jeopardizing the deal's chances of passage in the Senate. First, they're going to vote on the deal, which, as a reminder, includes a 24% increase in pay, and it also includes a cap on health care premiums. And then they're going to have a separate second vote on just adding a paid sick leave. Then all of that will head to the Senate. It's unclear if the Senate's going to take up the paid sick leave portion, but you do have Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer vowing to get this deal done. Of course, it's a matter of timing. Every senator needs to be in agreement. And, you know, Congress is trying to act fast, but that's always easier said than done around here, Caitlin. Of course. And that paid sick leave is crucial. Melanie, thank you so much for that update. It was the moment. Do you want to do the goal thing, Don? Mm, no. <laughs> All morning he's been saying goal. It's the moment American soccer fans have been waiting for since 2014. Here it is. Our Adams. Austin McKinney, Des making a big run. It's meant for him. Des is snuck in behind. Des in the middle. The moment the U.S. beat Iran in the World Cup yesterday to advance the knockout round thanks to that goal by Christian Pulisic. It didn't come easy for the U.S. Iran threatened to score late in the game, nearly running Team USA's chances, to, ruining Team USA's chances to move on. With ice in his veins, one U.S. defender made sure he and his teammates would be playing on Saturday. Does Cameron Carter-Vickers get enough? No, I think he goes down far too easy here. There's a hand on the shoulder for sure. But I think Taremi's trying to play for the penalty. Does Cameron Carter-Vickers get enough? Joining us now from Doha is Walker Zimmerman. He is the defender on the U.S. men's national team. Congratulations to you guys. I mean, even the president stopped what he was doing to let a whole factory in Michigan know that you guys had won. So congratulations and thanks for being with us this morning. 
Thank you very much. We're extremely excited, and thanks for having me this morning. You, were, you guys really set out to change how the world sees U.S. soccer. Do you think you've done that so far? I hope so, uh, but we're not finished yet. And so I think the narrative continues. Uh, we're still going to try and do that and accomplish our goal of winning the World Cup. And I think if we're able to do that, we're going to inspire a lot of young players, uh, a lot of young Americans to pick up the sport and, and hopefully make them proud. Okay, Walker, you're being really humble, though, because all morning we have been talking about Christian and his goal, but there was this moment, it felt like it was happening in slow motion, where the ball had slipped past the goalkeeper, it was going towards this open net, and then you entered. What was going through your mind in that moment? Yeah, I, I knew that there was uh, only a few minutes left. You know, nine minutes of stoppage time is a long time, and just try to stay focused and be in the moment and always prepared for the worst. And so as the ball kind of went through towards the goal, was able to anticipate something happening and it was in a good spot to make a play and uh, help keep that clean sheet that helped us get to the next round. Did it kind of feel like redemption at all for you? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, you know, it's it's more of just doing your job. And that's what was expected of me was to, to come in and, and make a difference and try and see out the game and to be able to contribute in that way uh, and serve that role uh, was awesome. And I'm just happy I got to contribute. You guys are in a bubble, as well you should be. But you know there's a lot going on, right? People, A lot of people paying attention for different reasons um, that have to do with rights and all of that. And then, But you have the America back home cheering you on. Are you aware of that, or are you just focused on the game? Are you aware of the other things that's happening? I think we're definitely aware of, of the importance of different things and issues that are, are coming about within each game. Uh, but at the same time, it's not distracting us from our goal or, or shifting our focus away from what we're, we're trying to achieve. So um, we're aware, but at the same time, uh, we know how important these games are for us. Uh, right. It's an extremely focused on the game. Walker, we're losing you a little I think bit. Came so back. I think you can hear you us okay. There? Yeah, I can hear you guys. You want okay, me to repeat good. that? Okay, okay, okay. No, we, we, we got it. Um, and, and can you just talk a little bit about what we saw at the end of the game uh, with embrace, you know, some, some of your teammates and you guys embracing some of the Iranian players and, and what that means in this moment, uh, especially given the human rights violations across Iran? A hundred percent. You know, we know first and foremost as, as competitors what it's like to lose. We also know the stakes of a World Cup. And then on top of that, uh, everything that you know they're dealing with emotionally. And um, so we just you know, congratulated them on their effort and uh, empathized with them um, and let them know that we were you know, proud of the way that they competed on the field uh, in the game last night. And Walker, a big question everyone has is how Christian Pulisic is doing. You know, he got injured as he, as he scored that goal. What's the latest that you've heard from your teammate? Uh, good spirits, and it was great seeing him at the hotel. Yeah. All right, we got it. The great spirits. Seeing it at the hotel. Saw him at the hotel. So that was it. Everyone's watching to see if he's going to be in the game against the Netherlands. Yeah, he said he's going to be there right. from his hospital bed, so we'll see. Walker yep. Zimmerman, our thanks to you. I know he can't hear right now, but and, and good luck. To him. Good luck. Congratulations, of course. Oh, there he is. Thank you, Walker. I don't know if you're still there. No, <laughs> he's gone. Okay. 
So we're going to move on and talk about a historic verdict on a charge rarely brought to trial in the U.S. A leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, has been found guilty by a Washington, D.C. jury of seditious conspiracy for his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Rhodes was also one of the five Oath Keepers, Oath Keeper defendants, to be convicted of obstructing an official proceeding, which on its own could carry a 20-year prison sentence. Prosecutors argue that Rhodes stood outside the Capitol on January 6th, acting like a general as his followers breached the building. So joining us now, Tasha Adams. She is Stuart Rhodes' ex-wife who helped him start the Oath Keepers more than a decade ago. She has since left the group and has condemned Rhodes and the Oath Keepers for their involvement on January 6th. This is her first interview, by the way, her first TV interview, I should say, since the verdict. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you joining us this morning. How are you doing, Tasha? Oh, happening. Yeah. Uh, amazing. <laughs> the best I've done in uh, a long time. <laughs> What's your reaction to your, your ex-husband being convicted on these charges, especially <laughs> the historic one of seditious conspiracy? Well, that was the big one. That's the one I was really worried about. Um, I was so relieved. I, I don't even know how to put into words the difference between the, the way the world feels now and the way the world felt to me before yesterday at uh, 3 p.m. my time, um, except to describe it as like being in a really noisy room for days, weeks, months on end, and then it's just suddenly quiet. It's like the absence of fear. It's the best way I can put it. <laughs> Why are you so, were you so skeptical that they would even find him guilty? Because uh, I know that you have said that he has never faced any consequences for his actions his entire life. Yeah, he, I, he has been able to get away with everything. I mean, you know, I wasn't even able to get a restraining order against him, you know, and I mean, just simple, simple things. He, he was given 50% custody, which had he been acquitted, he could have showed up here in Montana and just taken my kids, you know, and it seemed to be, to, it seemed to me, he seemed all powerful that there was nothing I could ever do. You know, even when we finally did get out, um, I mean, the police told me to go home to him, you know, sent me back home to my husband. It just seemed, it seemed impossible that he could lose. And though I saw the evidence against him, I knew logically it was a pretty good case. But emotionally, I just, he just seemed unbeatable. But that's not the case. And Tasha, I know the, the two of you, you have six children together. When you talk about your concerns about what that would look like. One thing that you said that stood out to me after the verdict came down is that you were concerned he might try to seek a pardon if Trump is reelected. I mean, that's the shadow over all of this. I know that that's what he's mentally doing right now as he is regrouping. And it, I'm not even sure it would have to be Trump, I think. Maybe a potential DeSantis uh, presidency. There's still the potential for pardon there. I mean, I, I know it's slight. I know that Trump could have pardoned him before, you know, and he didn't. So, but there's that slight shadow, you know, I know that that is what Stewart's doing right now. He's already mentally, he's already on the next step. You yeah. know, the power that he has over others, right? The power to persuade, the power to inspire, yeah. the power to compel. Do you believe that this conviction on such a charge that is such a high bar to, to reach conviction on will deter some of those followers? <clears throat> I think some. Um, my fear is that um, these criminal charges, it's, it's hard to imagine, but they don't really hurt him on the extreme right. 
And it's one of the reasons I feel sometimes compelled to just talk about the more personal side of him, the 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 abuse, the the misusing of funds of Oath Keepers. It doesn't get talked about a lot because a lot of people look at it like, well, he misused funds, but it's extremist money, so what? But it does hurt him on the right, and that does keep him from potentially rising again in a in an appeal scenario or a pardon in in those cases. So. I think that's one of the reasons I feel like I need to talk about the more personal side of him and, and all the damage he's caused to everyone, you know, not just criminally. Tasha, do you feel safe? I said I should have asked you because you talked about your kids and your, do you feel safe now? I do. I mean, of course, there's some concern with some of his followers. I do get messages. Some, you know, I did get some last night. I've dishonored my husband. Mm-hmm. This is all my fault. Well, I'm, I'm pretty used to everything being my fault, so that didn't faze me too much. Um, the FBI has been great. They check in on me, ask me, double check, you know, is there anything you're not, you know, you've been getting bad messages. Hmm. Good, And it's really the first time I've been able to breathe easy hmm. in years, maybe decades, to tell you the truth. Wow. <laughs> Tasha, thank you. We're glad that you're safe. And thank you so much for appearing. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. All right, speaking of feeling safe, what that looks like online with threats that Tasha was talking about, she's getting Twitter's former head of trust and safety is speaking out in a remarkable new interview saying that he no longer believes Twitter is safe under Elon Musk after initially saying he did think so. Kara Swisher, who conducted that interview, will join us live. Also, the lava flow from Mauna Loa volcano coming within four miles of the main highway on Hawaii's Big Island. Now authorities are raising health concerns. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Okay, so the man who was in charge of trust and safety at Twitter until just a few weeks ago is now voicing his top concerns for the social media company. His name is Uel Roth. He left the company earlier this month. He had made the case in New York in the New York Times op-ed that Twitter was actually becoming safer under Elon Musk's leadership, but now his stance has changed. So I'm going to listen to what he told a journalist and our pal here, Kara Swisher. Watch this. At one point, you tweeted that Twitter was actually safer under Elon. Do you feel, still feel that way? I don't. We, you know, it's, it's funny. In the, in the days shortly after the acquisition, a bunch of things happened. But one of them, predictably, because it's the internet, was that a trolling campaign emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, and a number of trolls, and you could sort of watch the organization happen on 4chan. So this is all happening in public. They were like, let's go to Twitter and test the new limits of Elon Musk. Yeah. Twitter's challenge going forward is not, you know, can the platform build machine learning? Sure, they can. But are there enough people who understand the emergent malicious campaigns that happen on the service and understand it well enough to guide product strategy and policy direction? And I don't think that there are enough people left at the company who can do that work. Mm. Well, joining us now, Kara Swisher, the host of On with Kara Swisher and the host of the Pivot Podcast. Kara, thank you. It was a fascinating, fascinating conversation. You, uh, you kept me up late uh, listening to it uh, last night. He was Twitter's <laughs> former head of trust and safety. Did, are the alarm bells sounding for you? What did you get out of that? 
Well, I've already been worried about that. But when you cut people who've been doing this for a while, and they'll make complaints that it was a problem before, and it certainly was. Keeping ahead of this thing is like being a, a trash man in Trashville. You know what I mean? That's the problem. And so when you cut a lot of people of experience, because it's a combination of machine learning, as he said, and also people, that's a real problem that people don't understand the signs, how people gather. A lot of this is experience in battling it, and it changes every day because these malevolent actors change their tactics all the time. What was the breaking point for him, though, Kara? Because Don mentioned he wrote that piece not w just yeah. weeks ago, knowing who Elon Musk was and knowing his erratic behavior, even in the purchase right. of this company. So what happened behind the walls of Twitter that made him break? Well, that was actually a tweet. He didn't say that in The New York Times. But one of the things that's interesting is that he was putting out, he was talking about that trolling campaign that happened right after Elon took over. And they, they, they were testing the limits and he was, they fixed it. They actually were able to push that back. But what he's talking about is the constant amounts of people leaving at the same time that they're letting people that, in fact, it's just Elon letting people back on the on the platform without a whole lot of oversight. And so his worry became, uh, he had a list that he had, red line list, one was not to lie for Elon, he didn't cross that one. But one of the ones that he was worried about is that decisions were made by fiat by one person. And that was his biggest worry. That is what's happening without a lot of consideration. And when the Twitter blue debacle happened where he just decided against the, the recommendations of his team, um, and then everything happened that they said would happen. I think that was enough for him, that this guy was going to make decisions based on his own decisions without any kind of input. Yeah, because he actually wrote initially in The Times that Musk empowered his team to more move more aggressively to yeah. remove hate speech. I found that fascinating. You also asked him, though, yeah. about the decision around Hunter Biden's laptop and the story from The New York Post mm -hmm. and how Twitter responded to that. This is what he told you. Do you remember the uncertainty of the of the whole story? We didn't know what to believe. We didn't know what was true. There was there was smoke, and ultimately for me, uh, it didn't reach a place where I was comfortable removing this content from Twitter. But it set off every single one of my finely tuned APT28 hack and leak campaign alarm right, bells. So it looked possibly probably. It, Everything about it looked you like a hack not, and leak and smelled like a hack and leak. You did not want to do that. But it didn't get there for me. When you feel a responsibility to protect the integrity of the conversations on a platform from foreign governments expending their resources to interfere in an election, um, there were lots of reasons why the entire industry was on alert and was nervous. But a mistake. And again, for me, even with all of those factors, it didn't get there for me. But so it was a mistake. In my opinion, yes. That's pretty significant, Kara, to say it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they did already. Actually, Jack Dorsey did. And so um, so he was reiterating that for him that he did. What happened was he got targeted by the right wing as being the one who made the decision. He didn't. He actually didn't want to remove it and and pretty viciously. Um, and so he his point was that they were all on alert to this having happened before and that uh, that they should have been very careful. I, I would agree with them. They made a mistake. And so that's what he was saying. They should have not done it. Um, it wasn't life threatening necessarily, um, but it was. And so they should have waited to see how it turned out. And that's what he said. It's a mistake they made. And lots of lots of uh, news organizations and uh, and media companies, and this is a media company, make mistakes. And that's what he was saying. I was just going to say that because there have been heads, of, as you know, recently heads of news organizations saying, talking mm -hmm. about why they didn't cover the Hunter Biden story in a way that was yep. uh, acceptable to, to some. And they said it just, 
Um, mm-hmm. it, it didn't get there for them. There was a lot of misinformation, and it looked like a hack. And yeah. considering the, who the players were, Rudy Giuliani, uh, the guy at the computer store, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. By no means, no massive. Let let me just say a conspiracy theory that he was saying that, too. It was just a mistake they made because they were on alert from what happened in 2016 and all the the hacked emails and things. It's fascinating interview, Kara. Thank you so much for joining us on it. Kara, thank you. Appreciate it. You can listen to the full interview Thursday morning on Kara's podcast. It's called On with Kara Swisher. And just ahead... South Dakota's governor banning TikTok from all government devices. We're going to tell you why she is doing it. That's next. And two little girls reunited with their parents after going missing in the woods. Oh. All right, for the five things to know this morning, let's get to CNN's Bryn Jen Grass. What do we need to know? Hey, guys, good morning. There's a big update out of Idaho. The University of Idaho will hold a candlelight vigil tonight to honor the four students who were found stabbed to death. This as tensions and fears continue to mount in that community. Investigators removed the remaining cars at that residence Tuesday. Officials say they have received an uptick in 911 calls, but no suspect has been identified and no arrests have been made. Lava from the world's largest active volcano, check that out, is causing concerns as it comes within four miles of a major highway on Hawaii's Big Island. Former Chinese President Zhang Zemin has died. Zemin came to power after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protest and led the nation for a decade. He's credited with paving the way for China's emergence as a global superpower. He was 96. Kim Kardashian and Kanye West have agreed on a divorce settlement. A draft of the deal obtained by CNN shows that Kardashian will receive a $200,000 child support payment from West every month, and they will share joint custody of their four children. And guys, check this out. A heartwarming reunion. Two young girls in Louisiana are back with their parents after being missing for hours. Authorities found them safe and sound following their disappearance from their yard Monday with their golden retriever right by their side. That's five things to know this morning. More on these stories all day on CNN and CNN.com. Back to you guys. Thank you. So I know that's what I do when I need to feel good. Reuniting stories. Last night was me. No, seriously, this is what I did. Dogs that were reunited, pets that were reunited with their families after, like, storms. They got lost. One dog, I have to say, was gone for, I think, like, two weeks, but found its way home, like, two I miles after that. breaking two legs. Oh, my, my gosh. gosh. I was it's like, like that movie that yeah. I watched with my kids, Homeward Bound or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. We should move on. <laughs> classic of our time. Thank you very much. Poppy. South Dakota's governor signing an executive order banning state employees and contractors from accessing TikTok on government devices. Christy Nome writing, South Dakota will have no part in the intelligence gathering operations of nations who hate us. There has been renewed criticism of TikTok this year, stemming from a BuzzFeed news report in June that said that some U.S. user data has been repeatedly accessed from China in a response to the report, TikTok previously said that it was it is consistently maintained that our engineers in locations outside of the U.S., including China, can be granted access to U.S. user data on an as-needed basis under those strict controls. So joining us now, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, Mr. John Miller. Good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Um, this just sort of renews my uh, stance that I'm no TikTok for me. 
Well, yeah. for, first of all, the governor's right on a much wider level, which is on government phones, you shouldn't be ingesting outside apps and contacts. I mean, you know, in the New York City Law Department, we had somebody basically download SimCity, but a malware copy that was, wow. you know, fake because it was free and crashed the entire mm -hmm. um, New York City legal department's, you know, servers. So it's just a good practice to keep only approved software on those government devices. Now, TikTok, you know, TikTok is a private company in China, um, but they also collect names, dates of birth, uh, your phone number. That's what you give them to sign up. We all did that, right? Um, that's what we hand them. But in the background, they're collecting IP addresses that you use, what computers you're on, um, what your likes and dislikes are, what your interests are. And from an intelligence gathering standpoint, uh, that's enormously valuable data for a place that has 1.5 billion users um, and 80 million in the United States. So... All right. It's very complicated, but it's ByteDance. It's a Chinese parent company that owns TikTok. They have an American CEO. They say they're operated. The data is safe here, but they do, do have engineers in China. We saw in the last year big tech companies pull out of China like LinkedIn and Yahoo because they just couldn't comply with what the Chinese government required in terms of data. Um, is there anything that you think could be done by the U.S. government or assurances from the company to the U.S. government that you believe would make it safe to continue operating here? Because Mike Pompeo said this is one of his biggest regrets that that administration could not get rid of TikTok. So, I mean, the reason I'm laughing halfway through the question is uh, here, you know, we fight, the government fights with private companies over data all the time, whether they'll respond to court orders even. Um, in China, you can't separate the company from the government. Even if the company is fully legit and private, uh, the, the requirements of the government do not include the ability to say no when the government says we want this data, either handing it out through the front door or the government requiring, to have, requiring a back door to go in and vacuum that data themselves. Look at the history of Chinese intelligence and technology. They hacked the Office of Personnel Management, basically the U.S. federal government's Department of Personnel. And among the things they took were all of the applications for secret and top secret clearances. So now China literally has a directory of every person who has valuable classified information in the United States. Think about what you could do with that, which is you could mix it with your border control customs and immigration material. So every time somebody from the United States with a security clearance came in, a bell would ring in your computer and say, why is this person here? And if they had a common name like John Miller, you could use your TikTok data or the healthcare companies they've hacked into to correlate and disambiguate and figure out, is it a Don Lemon or is it that Don Lemon? Mm -hmm. This is what the Chinese do. Mm. Wow. John Miller. It's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. All right, we have some breaking news right now. There has been an explosion at the Ukrainian embassy in Madrid. The Spanish Ministry of Interior says that one person has been injured after handling a letter this person is being treated at a hospital and the national police are investigating what happened. We'll keep you updated as more information comes in. Police say it's too early to know if the explosion took place when an embassy worker tried to open an envelope or simply move the envelope. We'll keep you updated on that story.
Also this morning, early turnout in Georgia's Senate runoff election. It's shattering records. This week I was in Georgia. I caught up with the Democrat in that race, the incumbent Raphael Warnock, about next week's crucial runoff election. The stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, and the contrast between me and my opponent could not be more obvious. Right, we need to talk about what's happening now. This is just into CNN. The U.S. economy grew much faster than expected in the third quarter, according to the latest gross domestic product report, which showed GDP rose by an annualized rate of 2.9 percent. Poppy, we were just talking. Was it yesterday we were talking to Christine Romans about this? Yesterday or the day before? We're talking about Christi, to Christine Romans about this and Mark Stewart about measuring the economy. And after COVID, you really don't know the weird economy. The weird economy. I just call it the weird economy. Yeah, I was just looking at the numbers. I mean, it's it's better than they expected. They previous reading showed 2.6 percent growth. Consumers are spending, right, Caitlin? We were talking about this Black Friday, Cyber Monday spending, spending more than ever. Uh, I think the question is: This is good. It's a big headline. It's unexpected. I don't know how long it it can last. I think that's the question: Are they spending savings that were there from COVID times yeah. and stimulus? And but the consumer is all powerful in the U.S. economy. We control 70 percent. Our spending controls 70 percent of this number. But I don't even know if Black Friday or, or, or Cyber Monday, if it's, it's not it's included not, in it's this. It's not, but right, the point is yeah. that they continue to have that power. And people have more savings and, and that sort of thing. I think the thing that I've also been watching, and we'll see how the White House responds to this, is this private sector job growth yeah. slowing since it's the slowest it's been since early 2021. And I wonder how that translates and what that means in all this. Because obviously, as you noted, the expectation here had been 2.6%. Now it's 2.9%. Yeah. So if you're the White House, how are you responding to this this yeah. morning? So yeah. the, again, the U.S. economy grew faster than expected. The third quarter, that's according to the latest gross domestic product report, which showed a GDP rose by an annualized rate of 2.9%. That's an improvement from initial government reading in October that showed a 2.6 growth in economic activity. Listen, any growth, that take is it. good news. We'll take it, but... We're also excited for what's next. We are, and it's a weird economy, so we'll see. And we may, we, we can have him weigh in on all of this. Yes. There is Sir Richard Branson. He's here in our studio to talk about his new HBO docuseries that offers a rare and intimate glimpse into his life and his journey to success, but we're going to talk to you about more than that, right, Poppy? A lot more. And there he is with our producer, Mike, who always makes his way into these great shots. Thanks, Fig. (laughs) (laughs) What a treat. We have a special guest this morning on CNN This Morning. It is Sir Richard Branson, Knighted by the Queen. The HBO's upcoming four-part documentary series, Billionaire and Virgin Group founder Richard Branson offers a really rare, this is different than what you've seen on him, an intimate glimpse into his life and how his relatively humble upbringing and a family that encouraged risk-taking made him the man he is today despite his challenges. Watch this. My mum tried to get us over our shyness to challenge ourselves. We allowed them to do a lot of the interesting things. That's led on to a few more daring things. He thrives on jeopardy. It's a continuation of his childhood. Having suffered from dyslexia, having left school at 15, I had a lot to prove. He is a bundle of contradictions. 
people were seduced into thinking that this was a bumbling good guy, when in fact Richard always had a very firm eye on the bottom line. <laughs> Joining us now is Sir Richard Branson. What a pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to CNN this morning. Uh, let's start with where this docu-series starts, okay? Because I've interviewed you many times for a decade and never seen you like you are portrayed in this. You are filming a video for your family 16 days before you go to space in one of your own spaceships, Virgin Galactic, and it's only going to be seen if you die. And you can't get through it. You are choked up, and we see your vulnerability. Well... I have um, foolishly done uh, a number of foolish things in my life. And, and before each one, I've made a point of writing a letter to my kids or my grandkids now, um, just ex trying to explain you know, why uh, I believe that they, they I, 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 why I'm pushing myself to the limit, why they should push themselves to the limit. Um, but just in case, the balloon, you know, doesn't cross the Pacific or go around the world and, and, and we end up uh, in the sea and don't come home. Um, uh, I obviously, you know, want to be able to communicate with them. And, and so, the, you know, the, the same obviously applied because it's very early days in the space industry. Um, uh, and, um, uh, but it's strange talking about yourself after, in the after, past. after in the past, and and, and 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 yeah, it did get to me on this occasion. Can you offer us some perspective on it? Because I was just listening it, and it said that you are people think that you're sort of bumbling around, but you are you are focused on the bottom line. Can you offer offer us some perspective as a business person, an entrepreneur, a leader on what's happening with the economy? We just did a story before the break, and you were in here, um, walking over that the U.S. economy has grown 2.9%. The GDP has rose by an annualized rate of 2.9%, higher than they had expected. And we have been saying since COVID, we're not sure that we have the right metrics to measure our economy. Can you weigh in on that? What do you think of that? Interestingly, um, it was an independent documentary, so I don't agree with everything that's said. And, 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 and actually, my life is not focused on the bottom line. I, I'm focused on creating things that I, you know, that I really believe in and, and hopefully, you know, are the best, you know, like the best airline, the best cruise company, but, you know, so, so that's, and then I hope that more money comes in and goes out at the end of the year. Um, as far as the uh, economy is concerned, um, uh, I think, I, you know, I, I, I think that, the, that people, there's pent up demand from people um, to spend after COVID. Um, obviously, some people don't have any money to spend after COVID. But um, for, those, for those who actually save money during COVID, they've come out, they want to travel. I mean, Virgin Atlantic planes are, are full again. Uh, they want to go on cruises, um, you know, Virgin Voyages. Our new cruise company is finally, you know, full of people. Um, and um, they want to have a good time. And um, uh, so... Whether that will be sustainable, we'll have to see. I mean, obviously, the Fed are trying to uh, reduce inflation and, 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 and raise interest rates at the same time. So it's going to be interesting to see when, when, when things level off uh, and whether they'll go too far and we'll actually uh, go into a bit of a recession. But, you know, anyway, we'll have to see. Thanks for I, responding to that. I love that idea of pursuing excellence in the things that you're doing. But to do that, you know, you're taking big risks. And obviously that is how people think of you as kind of this daredevil, risky guy. 
I wonder how you approach that because you're not immune to risk. Obviously, everyone can see the rewards that have happened because of the ones that you've taken. But how do you approach risk in a situation like yours? Um, well, I'll give you an example. We, we started Virgin Atlantic, our airline crossing the Atlantic 38 years ago this year, uh, with one, one secondhand 747. Um, and uh, uh, the, our team at the record company thought I'd gone mad to go into an airline business. And actually, I, I suspect <laughs> on paper they were right. Um, but I, what, so what I did was I said to Boeing, look, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. But at the end of the first year, I want to be able to hand that plane back if I've got it, if I've got it wrong, if people don't like the, the product that we're offering. Um, and so it wasn't going to bring the rest of the Virgin group down. At the end of the year, uh, people loved flying Virgin Atlantic and we bought two more planes from Boeing. So they, 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 by agreeing that, um, by agreeing to cover the downside for us, they, they actually ended up selling... And over the years, many more planes. So, um, so I think we, I, I do try to protect the downside in, in every move I make. And well, one of the things to, to Caitlin's good point is you have you wrote 50 years ago in the student newspaper you started at university. The brave may not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. And we cover your public risks, like going to space or going around in a hot air balloon. We don't often talk about the risks you've taken um, to fight for equality around the world. Um, the work you've done with Nelson Mandela on the elders, trying to talk to Saddam Hussein, uh, the, the climate change work you've done, trying to abolish the death penalty, all of these things as well. Talk to us about how that plays into if you're ca too cautious, you're really not living. So I think um, uh, as an entrepreneur, I've had a lot of experience in trying to solve problems. Um, so, uh, you know, if there's... Uh, if there's a war going on, um, uh, I mean, you, know, you, you mentioned the Saddam Hussein, um, you know, I, I um, thought it was worth giving it a shot to try to stop the war um, by uh, trying to persuade Saddam Hussein to step down and go and live in Iraq for the rest of his, uh, sorry, to go and live in Libya for the rest of his life. And, um, and uh, using contacts with King Hussein of Jordan, um, he basically agreed that he, would go if we could send two elders to go and talk to him. And, and Nelson Mandela agreed to go. Kofi Annan, who was Secretary General of the United Nations, agreed to go. And sadly, the bombing started just before the trip took place. Um, but the, as a result of that, we set up the elders, which is a, a wonderful group of men and women who do go in to try to resolve conflicts, who, who um, do talk out on climate change, who do try to address the problems of the world from a moral standpoint rather than from a political standpoint. Why was it important? You've been a, a, a supporter of LGBTQ rights for a long time. You see what's happening with same-sex marriage the, that's happening in the Senate and, and in Congress. You wore um, a pin, a rainbow pin, into space. Why such, why were you ahead of the curve? Why? why? Um, well, I was a teenager, <clears throat> and the film, uh, the, the, the HBO series, has got footage somehow of where, when, when I was a teenager, we had a centre for young people who had problems. And one, one of the groups of people that used to come to the centre were young gay people who had come from you know, remote parts of the UK um, where, where being gay wasn't accepted. And, um, and so we, we set up a, a, a place called Heaven in London where they could meet and um, meet other gay people. And... Um, and so from a young age, I realized that, um, you know, you're born gay, you've got no choice in the matter. You know, gay people need 
um, they, they, they need friends, um, uh, they need to be loved, and, and, um, and we've tried to change the rules. You know, we're still working hard to change the rules in countries that do atrocious things to gay people. You know, I mean, Russia is an example, or um, uh, um, anyway, countries in Africa. I mean, some, some things left over from English colonial days, but, um, but I think, I think that, I think, um, it's important as entrepreneurs to, uh, I mean, Singapore, we're, we're, we're executing a, um, a, a, a boy with low IQ um, for uh, bringing some drugs into the country, I mean, a small quantity of drugs, and, and we tried to stop the execution, um, and, uh, and it, we didn't succeed. But I think we managed to highlight, you know, amongst Singaporeans, um, that they were one of the few countries left in the world that are, are still executing people for, t for taking drugs. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. The series we, premieres, yeah. we should note, December 1st. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. so, so interesting, I think. Thanks for, yeah, thank uh, thanks for sticking up for folks who often don't have a voice they, with your power. No, well, um, you do and as, for taking risks. Well. <laughs> yeah, and taking risks yeah, no, and taking you. us to space maybe yeah. one day. Thank you, Sir Richard Branson. Look forward to it. on HBO and HBO Max. Yeah, we appreciate you coming. It's a great watch. Thank you. Right. Thanks thank you. to all of you. We'll see you here tomorrow morning. CNN Newsroom is after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.